just a a brief uh, let's see well we'll read we'll read tonight and then jump straight into the lesson lesson so we'll read the questions and answers for 60 through 66 so on page 946 60 can they who have never heard the gospel and so know uh, not Jesus Christ nor believe in him be saved by their living according to the light of nature they who having never heard the gospel know not Jesus Christ and believe not in him cannot be saved be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature or the laws of that religion which they profess. Neither is there salvation in any other but in Christ alone, who is the Savior only of his body, the church. Are all they saved to hear the gospel and live in the church? All that hear the gospel and live in the visible church are not saved, but they only who are true members of the church, invisible. What is the visible church? The visible church is a society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess the true religion and of their children. What are the special privileges of the visible church? The visible church hath the privilege of being under God's special care and government, of being protected and preserved in all ages, notwithstanding the opposition of all enemies, and of enjoying the communion of saints, the ordinary means of salvation, and offers of grace by Christ to all the members of it in the ministry of the gospel, testifying that whatsoever believes in him shall be saved, in excluding none that will come unto him. What is the invisible church? The invisible church is the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. What special benefits do the members of the invisible church enjoy by Christ? The members of the invisible church by Christ enjoy union and communion with him in grace and glory. What is the union which the elect have with Christ? The union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably, joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. Well, last week, together, we considered G for, oh, H for the Holy Spirit, right? And we considered... Uh, how the Holy Spirit makes us partakers of all of the gospel benefits that Christ himself has won for us. And so tonight, as we come to I is for Israel, in a sense, we're coming to the topic of ecclesiology again, the nature of the church, uh, but just from a different angle. Uh, we're looking at the story of the Israel of God from uh, the early pages in Genesis all the way to the New Testament. We'll see that God's ancient people of Israel gave birth to the true Israel, namely Jesus Christ, by whom we as Gentiles, as the nations, have been adopted into the last Israel of God, the eschatological Israel of God. And so those will be our three points 
the ancient people of Israel, the archetypal Israel, that is the true Israel, Christ, and then thirdly, our adoption into the Israel of God. So ancient people of Israel, archetypal Israel, and then our adoption into the Israel of God. So first, the ancient people of Israel. The name Israel, it comes from uh, the kind of lucha libre episode that we find in Genesis 32, 24 through 29 in the Old Testament, the wrestling match between Jacob, the patriarch, son of Isaac, and the son of Abraham, who wrestled in the night with the angel of the Lord. Uh, it's kind of like this jujitsu match with Jehovah there, as Jacob then was thereafter renamed the Israel of God, Israel. And we can read that, Genesis 32, 24 through 29, where it says this, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Uh, later, we find that Jacob realizes that he was wrestling with the angel of the Lord, a manifestation of God himself. Now, in this fascinating episode, we, it's kind of a climatic point in the life of Jacob. And all throughout the life of Jacob, we can say that we find him wrestling with others. Um, he's prevailing with others, with his brother Esau, in the womb as they were twins, wrestling with him and trying to gain that birthright. Then uh, he has this kind of 14-year-long wrestling match with his uncle Laban for the hand of his daughter, Rachel. And then we find him here, at this climax of his life, in this moment of desperation in the night, wrestling with the angel of the Lord. A theophany, this appearance, this visible manifestation of God, and he's wrestling with the Lord. Why? Well, Jacob was always striving and competing with other people in order to try and seize a blessing in his own strength, with his own cunning, with his own scheming. And I think in one sense, that's what we all try to do uh, in our sinful nature. We're constantly competing with others, wrestling with others, trying to win the upper hand. But each time Jacob laid a hold of another, first Esau, then Laban, then Leah, well, each time he did ultimately end up getting a kind of blessing, but it came with a twist each time for him. He had to flee for his life from Esau, flee from his family, the comfort of his mother and father. He had to work for seven years for Rachel's hand, an extra seven years after he was tricked. And then he had to work uh, in, in order to, of course, uh, after getting Leah, then working for Rachel with Laban. And then here... He leaves this wrestling match with the Lord with his hip socket out of joint and he limps for the rest of his days, uh, but now with the greatest blessing of all, the blessing of God's favor upon him. 
And here at last, Jacob finally wrestles with God. He contends with his maker, the only one who is able to give him the blessing that he truly needed, the blessing of peace and salvation, we could say. And Jacob entered this wrestling match as the fearful deceiver, always afraid, always trying to scheme his way out of things or get things. And that's what his, his name Jacob in Hebrew means, deceiver or heel grabber. It's in a sense a metaphor for one, one who in a race is right at the heels of another, trying to win that upper hand and get around and get ahead of another person. Um, but here he leaves, not as Jacob, but he leaves with the peace of one who has contended with God, and so his name is now changed to Israel, which means uh, exactly that, one who has contended and wrestled with God. Why did he wrestle with the Lord that night? Well, he was, in this episode, deathly afraid of meeting his brother in the company of men in the morning, because he knew that after years of separation from Esau, without achieving reconciliation, without uh, trying to seek peace and asking for forgiveness for what he had done, that Jacob, now he's on his way traveling, and he has this huge company of travelers with him, including women and children and all kinds of livestock. And Esau and his men, his kind of mighty warrior men, could have easily decimated Jacob and all with him. And so Jacob was afraid. He was afraid in this episode but after this episode, he was a changed man. Genesis 32, 30 through 31, the next following verses says, Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. He was limping. So he's physically injured in a sense, but it's also a symbol of a deeper humility that God had worked into him in this episode. And a lot of times he uses, I think, in life our physical hardships and injuries to humble us, to bring us to a place of greater dependence upon him and his grace and his strength. And that's what seems to happen with Jacob. He understood God's mercy and grace all the more after this episode. He knew that God could have easily destroyed him in an instant if he could just touch his hip socket and put it out of joint. How easily could have God destroyed him, but God instead showed him mercy and spared his life. It seems that he realized at last that blessing and curse depends entirely upon God, not on one's own striving. And so he collapsed into the arms of mercy and grace, and he had a limp as he walked, but the sun rose above him, and it's a very fascinating detail, this uniquely descriptive detail in the Old Testament especially, but also in the New when you find such specific details describing the scenario or the scene, it's not simply for fluff uh, in the narrative. Usually this has a significance, and most likely, I think, that this is to be interpreted with a symbolic meaning, that as he passed by the place where he saw God's face and lived was spared, the sun rising to shine upon him reminded him that though he limped, he limped under the grace of God, now shining his favor more brightly upon him as one who had been humbled by God. And since Jacob was the father of the twelve sons who, whose descendants then became the twelve tribes, the new name that God gave to their father that they had in common, Israel, now 
not Jacob, but Israel, became their common name as a people, the common name of the twelve tribes of Israel, God's covenant people, his church in the Old Testament. When God later called Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus event, God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai and commissioned them to be his special servant in the world. Israel as a nation was in a way commissioned at Sinai to be a new Adam in this world, to do what humanity in the beginning failed to do in the garden. That is, uh, to purify, protect, and perfect the promised land of God by covenantal faithfulness. That's what their task was as they entered into the promised land. Purify, protect, and perfect the promised land of God and thereby be a light to the nations about God's kingdom. And with that task, as this kind of second Adam in the Old Testament, did they succeed? Well, no, not at all. The prophet Hosea writes of their history, saying, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. In Hosea 6, 7. So they transgressed the covenant, like Adam before them. And so we find kind of the, uh, the summary in that way of the ancient people of Israel, which leads us then to our second point, the archetypal Israel, the, the great supreme true Israel of God, which is Christ. God said this of Israel's exit from Egypt in the Exodus event in Hosea 11.1. 1, he said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And God in Hosea 11 was speaking of Israel, it's the ancient people of God, his nation, but then Matthew, in his gospel account of the life of Jesus, in Matthew 2, 13 to 15, he says this, Now when they had departed, speaking of Jesus' family, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, his Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. So this is quite profound, that Matthew recognized that Jesus' own life story was a reflection and a summation of Israel's life story, of Israel's story. And in a sense, uh, he had, Matthew had the map of Israel's story before him, and as he put the map of Jesus' life on top of it and held it up to the light, he could see that there were parallel events in both the life of Israel and the life of Jesus that lined up. And in that way, he saw how Jesus fulfilled the story of Israel as the true Israel of God. As Israel was baptized through the Red Sea, for example, God called Israel his son. And then what did he do? Well, he sent them into the wilderness and tested them for 40 years. And so, likewise, Jesus was baptized, called God's beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and tested for 40 days. You see the parallel of those events. And there are, there are more, but those are, that's just one example. And in the testing of both Adam and Israel, they failed. But the true Son of God, the true Israel of God, triumphed in the wilderness. He succeeded and passed the test with 
perfect faithfulness and obedience to God. And like Jacob, Jesus, he contended with God the Father for his blessing there in the Garden of Gethsemane through the night and all the way to the cross. Jesus prayerfully wrestled with God, we could say, with the Father. He left the match with more than just a limp. The Son of God, the true Israel, was not spared, but died in our place. But then as Jesus rose from the tomb, the sun was shining upon him, symbolically showing the dawning of a new age of God's favor and grace. And here's the good news for us, that Jesus contended with God, not just for himself, but for us. He was not spared for us so that we would be spared. He rose from the dead so that God's grace would rise now upon us forevermore and grant to us that resurrection life. And so we see that Jesus is that archetypal Israel of God. And now our third point, our adoption into the Israel of God, that through our union to Christ by faith, we now abide in the true Israel of God, the true promised seed of Abraham, and thus we are the true circumcision, not made by hands, but made by the Spirit in our hearts, which we kind of considered this morning. Uh, first of all, we are the Israel of God. Galatians six fifteen to 16, at the end of his letter to the Galatians, there Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. And so, if you look at the whole broader context of the book, or the letter to the Galatians, you see that Paul here at the end is speaking of the church when he says, upon the Israel of God, uh, which is now the church united to Christ. Then, also in Galatians, we find that we are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3, 8 through 9 says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so we are the children of Abraham, those who have the same faith of Abraham. And lastly, we are the true circumcision. This we find in Philippians 3, 3 where Paul says, for we are the circumcision, and he's writing to the Philippians who are Gentiles primarily, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's saying, how do you identify who the true circumcision is? Well, they are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and do not boast in the flesh or in their own obedience to God. Those are the true Uh, circumcised one, circumcised of the heart, the true children of Abraham, the true Israel of God. Now, in A.D. 70, that climatic event in the history of the world and the church, the temple of Israel was destroyed uh, by Jesus' own prophecy, and God effectively ended his covenantal agreement with the geopolitical nation. Of Israel. And this is why we believe that the Jewish nation of Israel and the Jewish ethnicity should no longer be called or considered God's special people. 
Christ is the true Israel, and united to him, Christians are the true Israelite. Uh, sorry, Christians are true spiritual Israelites in that sense. In light of this turn of events and in redemptive history, the Apostle Paul asks these similar questions in Romans 11. He says, I ask then, did God reject his people? And he's speaking about ancient Israel, the geopolitical nation. He says, by no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So Paul is showing us here that God himself did not reject his people. Paul is showing us that as he himself realized that God has always, throughout redemptive history, kept a remnant of Israelite believers in the faith, a remnant faithful to him within his covenant community. As Paul says in Romans 9, not all of Israel belongs to Israel. There, is within, there was within that covenantal people, Israel, that remnant of true Israelites, those of true faith. And so too, Paul is saying that a remnant of Jewish people in his day, in the early church, embraced Jesus as the Messiah, including himself. So the New Testament church, we, we should always remember, it began with this root, with this beginning, the remnant of, we could call them, early messianic Jews like Paul and the apostles, those who embraced Jesus as the true promised Messiah. And so that's that remnant that becomes the, the, the beginning, the root of the church in the New Testament. In fact, Paul says earlier in Romans 1.16 that the gospel, in that thesis statement, right, that the gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. And as a messenger of Jesus, Paul displayed this kind of covenantal favor in the days of the apostolic ministry uh, as he would preach first, as he entered in a, into a city, he'd go first to the synagogues where the covenantal people of God were, the Israelites, and he'd preach to them showing them from the scriptures how Jesus is the Messiah. But then once they rejected the Messiah, the majority of them, some would believe, but the rejection of the Messiah by a majority of Israel meant that then the message was to be sent to the, to the Gentiles. And Paul, we then find, along with his companions, would go out and speak to the Gentiles next. Jesus, he told us a parable about this in Luke 14, 16 to 24, where he says that this, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then his, the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded uh, has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, 
Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. And so with this parable and a few others, Jesus is showing how first God was diligently and faithfully preaching and compelling the, the Israelites, his, his covenant people, to come, but so few, so few embraced the Messiah. And in turn, that gospel message was sent out with great force to the nations and has reached even us here today. And so we see that we have been adopted into the true Israel of God. Some say that the church is the replacement of Israel, but that's probably not the best language. It's better to say that Gentile Christians have been included or adopted into the Israel of God by their union with Christ, who is the true Israel of God. I have a couple quotes that we'll end with here. One from Justin Martyr of the second century, second century, uh, so just a hundred or less than a hundred years after the Apostle Paul. He wrote this, the true spiritual Israel. He said, Jesus Christ is the new law and the new covenant, the expectation of those who out of every people wait for the good things of God, for the true spiritual Israel and the descendants of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, who in uncircumcision was approved of and blessed by God on account of his faith and called the father of many nations, are we who have been led to God through this crucified Christ. So he says we are now uh, the true spiritual Israel, we who have been led to God through faith in Christ. And then another contemporary theologian of us today, G.K. Beale, he writes this, Christ is the true Israel, and as true Israel, he represents the church as the continuation of the true Israel from the Old Testament. Christ came to do what Israel should have done but failed to do. And those who identify by faith with Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, become identified with him and his identity as true eschatological Israel. People are identified by faith with Jesus as God's son, and so they become adopted sons of God. In the end, loved ones, this should fill us with a deep sense of gratitude for all that God has done to include us in his, in his people. Uh, more than that, to contend for us through the person and work of Christ on the cross. And in response, we should go to the highways and the byways, as we heard in that parable, to compel people to come in, that God's house would be filled. And follow also in the footsteps of Jacob and Jesus by prayerfully wrestling with God in prayer, contending for his blessings to fall upon us, the blessings of salvation, ultimately his favor upon us and our household and our church, etc. Even as the persistent widow uh, in Jesus' parable prayed uh, with persistence, knowing that Christ, remember, knowing that Christ has already contended for us in his life, his death on the cross. And he continues now resurrected and ascended in glory, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And we are united to him. Amen. Let's pray.